33 years ago, freshman uh, Bible student at Abilene Christian University, very first book of the Bible that we translated from Greek into English was 1 John. And uh, ever since then, I've had a very special place in my heart for these particular uh, chapters out of 1 John, not, not only because I had to struggle with them in, in a different language, in the original language, but because how that exercise forced me to, to think deeply about what it is that John, not only as a, an apostle, but as, as a, a shepherd of God's people, is trying to instruct their mind what it means to be saved, not just in, in our minds, but, but in the way that we live. And one of the things that you discover as you read First John is that he repeats himself a lot because he's trying to get a very simple message deeply embedded in their thinking, a message that assures them of their salvation. It is a message that allows them to be confident regardless of the kinds of things that they're going to meet on a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of the different kinds of philosophies that they're going to interact with that were floating around Asia Minor during this period of time, that they're going to be confident that they have a relationship with God that is solid, that is on firm ground. And that's what we're going to, uh, to be thinking about again tonight before we look at this passage that, that uh, Phil uh, read for us. I want us to pray and then again to, to look at what John speaks to us these 21 centuries later. Father, how grateful we are that you love us. And this love, Father, we do not understand fully. It is as deep as the ocean, as wide as the seas, as high as the skies and the universe above us. And yet, the deeper we go into these waters, Father, the, the more we are changed by this knowledge. The more we find ourselves being moved emotionally to deeper ground when it comes to loving You and loving each other. We pray, Father, that, this, that we continue on this proper path that we will be honest not only with this text, but honest with ourselves and the truths as they apply to our lives. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for these words. Regardless of what we do in this life, our, our status in this life, our, our employment, our relationships, our health, our wealth, at whatever level we find ourselves, Father, we find ourselves rejoicing in the truth that these words preach to us even these many centuries later. We continue to pray, Father, daily for eyes that see, ears that hear, in order to handle these words rightly and for them to have the full impact upon our lives. Bless us with these things tonight. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right there at the beginning of verse 3, 
of chapter 1, John writes, or of, of, of chapter 2, we can be sure we know Him. What John begins emphasizing from the very beginning of this epistle in the first four verses of the first chapter is that it is possible to know God. John even says that what we have is more than just mere knowledge. It is a fellowship with God, that we can share His life, that we have a relationship with Him, that you can actually have personal dealing with God, the Lord of the universe, and that the relationship is described by Him as joy complete. That's what John says is possible. And then beginning with verse 5 of chapter 1, John describes how that relationship with God is possible. In verse 5, John writes, This is the message. This is the message that we have heard from Him and declare to you. This is not just a variation of that Gnostic philosophy that was making its way through Asia Minor. It, it's not one of the other Greek philosophies or the, the Roman religion. It is a message that has come to John from God Himself that He is declaring to those that are reading this letter. There is a message, he writes, that must be believed for this fellowship with God to happen. And that message is that there are two worlds. There is a world of darkness which is kind of captured, covered up with sin. And there is a world of light in which God dwells, in which there is no sin. And in that verse 5, John says, God is light. God is in that world of light. He is in that world where there is no darkness. And there is no darkness in Him at all. And to be in fellowship with this God is to move from that world of darkness into that world of light. Now, this is not a message that is just unique to, to, to John. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. He writes to that church in Colossae struggling with the same kinds of philosophies. He says, you know, in giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of what? Light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. But that transfer, that, that being moved from a kingdom of darkness, that dominion of darkness, into the kingdom of light is um, impossible on, on our own. That's why Paul is very specific and says, it has to be this great rescue. That's why John, in John's letter, says that there must be a recognition of that sinfulness in us that has no place in God's light. To say that we have no sin, to say that we have not sinned, to say that there is no such thing as sin is to be deceived. On the contrary, that is a truth to be confessed. If we confess our sin, our sinfulness is a confession. You know, and this is a little daunting in most people's minds because all they, they think about in their mind's eye are all of the scenes of every police TV show or movie that they've ever watched. 
The criminal knows he's guilty and the confession has to be coerced out of him or tricked out of him. The bad cop scares him into confessing and if that doesn't work, the good cop comes in and tricks him into writing it all down on that little yellow pad of paper that seems to just appear out of nowhere. But in the end, the results are always the same. Bad cop, good cop, or in lethal weapon, uh, you know, bad cop, worse cop, the condemnation comes because of that guilt. And most criminals worth their salt know this and fight the confession tooth and nail. They are not going to confess because they know that confession is sort of the end of the line for them. But John says, think about it this way. Think about confession in the light in light of the message that we have received from God that I'm declaring to you. We are confessing to the one who is faithful and just. We confess to the one who will forgive our sins. And not only that, purify us from all unrighteousness. This is why the first two verses of chapter 2 are so important. John is not writing to people that he disdains like a criminal. He's writing to people he wants to understand this message and the life that he gives. And so he says, Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. He is also the atoning sacrifice before God. And as that atoning sacrifice, Jesus fulfilled our guilt sentence once and for all. There is that point in time in which the cross takes place and the guilt payment for humanity, for the world's sin, is paid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. You go over to the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. What are the last three words? Once for all. Peter tries to get in on this action. And he says in verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. It's kind of the way that John says, to have fellowship with Him. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The message of the New Testament, preachers and writers, is that Christ is that atoning sacrifice that once and for all, the guilt paid on that cross, on that cross Christ died and took the punishment for sin. So now we see Christ as our substitute on the cross, dying the death that we should have died because we cannot live the life that we should have lived in the past. 
But there's also a second part, a part in the present. The first part is that Jesus is that atoning sacrifice once and for all for our sins. The second part is that He is also our advocate in the present. And because we do continue to sin, even though it's, it's, it, it's a, a heinous thing, even though it is something that we hate more and more the closer that we have this, this fellowship with God, we do continue to sin, but Christ stands before the Father making a case. This is so important. There are, are, are so many disciples of Jesus who, 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 who really swept this out because they get the part that, I, that no one gets to the Father on their own. They have to go through Jesus. They get that part, and they understand that He is the atoning sacrifice, that the slate has been cleaned, but there's somehow this, this idea that because there's a clean slate, that means that that slate can be messed up again. And what do you do then? That's where the second half of what John is talking about here is so important. Yes, we get it. Christ died for our sins. We can't do that. He, somebody has to pay the penalty. He dies for us. He's the atoning sacrifice. We get that. But what about all of these other sins? John says that if you do sin, you have an advocate in the present. Christ's death is ours in the past. Christ's life is ours in the present. And when God looks at us, He has to look through Jesus who is our advocate. He sees Christ as our legal representative. He sees Christ as our proxy making a case for His righteousness to be our righteousness. And so we have to see Jesus as our advocate before the Father in the present. Which means, which means that we are continually free from the eternal penalty of our sins. It means that we are cherished and loved as if we had lived Christ's life. And this message, whereby John explains how you have fellowship with the Father, is the message that he is declaring to his people in Asia Minor. Now, there are some very practical outworkings of this in life. We looked at a couple of them last week. We'll kind of go over those very quickly and then take two more tonight and then we're done. The first one is, because this is true, we can finally deal with the guilt. All of us have that little voice in our head that says, how could God ever love somebody like you? God knows what kinds of thoughts you have in your, your mind. God knows the lusts that you have in your heart. God knows how dark your soul is. How could God love somebody like you? God is light. You're still in darkness. There's still a darkness inside of you. How could God love you? What John is saying is that that voice dies as soon as we understand the message that we have from him and that he is declaring from God that he has declared to us. That not only has our sin been paid in the past once and for all, but Jesus as our advocate is before the Father making a case, not begging that God give us mercy, but based on his righteousness that we find that that standing with God and that fellowship and that joy complete for all of eternity. God is not giving us mercy. God is giving us justice. And then secondly, you can deal with the disappointment that comes in life. Despondency in life is really the result a lot of times from a loss of hope. Something really, really important. Something that you cherish. Something that you are banking on doesn't come about. It might be a dream that doesn't come true. It might be something very valuable to you that's lost. It might be a relationship. It might be something tangible like, like a, a material thing that is lost. 
But when it's lost, you become despondent and, and depressed. And, and the reason that this brings about that despondency is because what we desire of those things is really what only Christ can give for us or can be for us. These things that when lost that bring despondency are in reality our case before God for Him to accept us. And when they fall through, when they fall short, there is this kind of, of a personal recession that, that sets in. And as we looked last week, we won't go over this, but the case study is Stephen being lynched in Acts. Stephen, in that moment, is losing everything that most people on earth always want, the good name, the reputation, the status, the old age. I mean, Stephen has lost all of that. But what he sees, what he is given is a glimpse of Jesus, his advocate at the right hand of God. And all of the, reaction, the, the rejection, all of that execution just seems to be forgotten. And he, even Stephen, being stoned to death, ask God to forgive these that are casting stones. And to the degree that you see Jesus as your righteous one, that, that advocate, you can take the guilt and the rejection in stride. Now that's, that's where we ended last week. Let me give you another. A practical outgrowth of this understanding of the message that brings us into fellowship with God, that gives us this joy complete, and it is you will experience a life change. It has to be significant that before John ever says anything about obedience to God's command, he lays out this message. He lays out this command. And so we ask, why? Well, the gospel, in essence, is about what you cannot do for yourself that has to be done by someone else on your behalf. And when you really, really, truly understand the objective truth of that gospel, as we've been laying it out over the last couple of weeks, when you really come to grips with it and it impacts you, then it will change you subjectively. That objective truth changes you subjectively. In fact, it will melt you. It will melt you because God's love is transforming you. And there is this gratefulness that wells up inside of you that kills off all of that pettiness and that pride and that ugly self-centeredness that causes so much strife and so much terribleness and meanness in the world. It's the kind of love that when it hits you full gale, it compels you to want to change, to want to be different, to live a life worthy of the love that you've been shown as Christ is your not just your advocate, but that atoning sacrifice. And you see Jesus not just as a Savior, but as the role model for your entire life. And so John writes in chapter 2, If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus walked. Now, we know how this works. I remember one of the first couples I ever performed a wedding ceremony for nearly three decades ago. We did all of the premarital counseling, and it was obvious that this young woman was marrying someone she loved very, very much, and she was willing to do anything for. This young man was not moved very much by that love. I mean, he saw the benefits of marriage. You know, it would, it would help him to get some 
job interviews because as a young man he was now married. He looked like he was settled down. He had somebody to do the dishes, somebody to cook. But he was not overwhelmed by this young woman's love for him. He would still do as he wanted. Said so in the counseling. In front of him, I told her, I don't think you ought to marry this guy. He's not worthy of, of the kind of relationship-driven love that, that, that you have for him. She started to cry. She said, I love him. She married him anyway. And her love did not change him in the sense that he was captured by how someone could love him, serve him, care for him, live with him, make sacrifices willingly for him. He was loved deeply, but he was, he was unchanged by it. About two and a half, maybe three years later, she comes by my office. They were divorced by then. She said she had wished she had listened. On the flip side, a person can be single for a lot of years and then find the love of their life, someone who chooses them over the other nearly 300 million people in this country to marry. And the very fact that somebody is willing to choose them not reject, not ignore, not neglect, but choose them. Somehow that kind of love, that choosing changes them. It did in my case. Because there was this beautiful young woman that wanted to marry me, I changed. I started shaving on a regular basis. I eventually broke the habit of leaving a trail of clothes through the house wherever I went. I rediscovered the lost art of making a bed. But there were also deeper changes. Deeper changes. I stopped living just for myself. The affections of my life were focused on a single woman, this single beautiful woman, and what that woman meant to me because she loved me more than any other person and she was showing it to me on a regular basis in which I had full assurance that she did. That somebody like her would choose somebody like me changed me forever. I didn't want to be just married. Legally. I didn't want to have somebody be able to live in the same house with me legally in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of God. There was something pretty special about the fact that even though I had all of these, these vices and very little virtue about me, she loved me. And I wanted to be a great husband because I took her vow to me seriously and believed when she said that she loved me that she really did. I can't help but think that John is saying that when we start to take the gospel seriously, then we begin to take Jesus seriously. You see, the problem 
that, that John is facing, and this, I think the same one that we face today, is the same one that, 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 that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was facing in the 1920s and the 1930s in Western Europe. Oh, Christianity was strong in Europe at that period of time. Great cathedrals. The Lutheran church in, in Europe, and especially in Germany, was, was mighty. And people would, 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 would study the theology and, and they would understand Jesus to be a great preacher and a great teacher and a great model, inspiring in all of that. And then Bonhoeffer, as troubled as he was, he comes to the United States. He goes to Union Seminary for, for, for study and he sees philosophy and, and, and Christianity among the foremost of those being talked about, but no real practical changes. He goes into the churches. And, and the preachers are preaching in the Northeast during this period of time, the great liberal theology of that time. They didn't really know if scriptures were divinely inspired. They didn't know if Jesus and all of those miracles, the virgin birth and all of that, really happened. But Jesus taught some pretty good ways to live. And he saw how anemic it really was. And he writes in a letter to one of his friends, he says something along the lines of, he says, wherever I go, it seems that people want to take Jesus as a philosopher, they want to take Jesus as a teacher, they want to take Jesus as, as a model and inspiration, they want to take Jesus as anything but seriously. And that's what John is saying here about the gospel. He suffered cruelly in order for us to know joy complete. He suffered forsakenness for a time in order for us to know fellowship with God all the time. He took on our sin in order for us to become His righteousness. He went into the darkness in order for us to come into the light. He died so that we can live joyfully, completely. One last thing, and there's really a lot more, but we'll finish with this one tonight. You can have assurance of your salvation. Over the years, I've met so many people all over the world that wonder. They wonder if they've done enough for God to accept them into His heaven. They wonder if they have done enough of God's commands and good deeds in order to outweigh all of the bad things that they have done all of the days of their life, their sins that are laid out before them, they know them all. They wonder. What John says, we know that we know Him. There is a sense, and this is where we're going to, the direction that these messages in First John are going to take from here on out, but he begins to talk about the assurance we have of our salvation. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things so that you can know you are saved. The reason we know we are saved is because we have believed in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus and have thrown ourselves upon that message. And not only that, we know that even in the continuance of our sin during the day, that we have this advocate who is not begging for God to give us mercy and not begging God to give us one more chance, but it is a, a, an advocate, a paraclete, a proxy, a legal represent, representative that before God is making a case. 
saying it's my righteousness, my righteousness. Why sweat? You know, that, that Paul can write so many things that are hard to understand. Difficult to understand. Peter even calls him out. Says everybody knows, knows Paul. He writes hard things. Seems to me that that's a kettle calling you know the pot black. Peter writes a few things himself. But one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8, this Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, how could Paul write that he was convinced? I mean, especially after all of the things that he had done, at the top of the list, murder. How could he write Romans 8? One reason, one reason only. He was convinced. He wrote Romans 8 because he was absolutely sure that Christ was his atoning sacrifice and that Christ was making his case on behalf of Paul before the Father. And so he writes to that young man in Ephesus, Timothy. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that He is able to guard what I've entrusted to Him for that day. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. We'll have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there is any way that we can minister to you tonight, maybe it's to help you make more concrete and make more firm in your thinking and in your daily life the truths that we've been talking about tonight. It might be through prayer or Bible study counsel, whatever it might be. This is the time to make those needs known. Or it might be that you've never really taken Christ seriously. Good philosopher, entertaining teacher, seems to have this, this strong conviction about, about Israel and true religion and taking care of the poor and practicing piety and all these kinds of things. He's inspiring that way. But you've never taken him seriously the way that he, he demands to be taken seriously. That he is not only Lord but Savior, not only Savior, but he is Lord. And he comes to you in love. And he says, I was willing to go to the dust, to taste my own blood in my mouth, to be flogged and to suffer. As the New Testament says over and over again, He not only died, but He suffered. He suffered for our sins. To suffer what you should have suffered. To die the death that you should have died. And I am willing to be your advocate and to argue my righteousness for you before the Father, so that you are confident of your relationship with Him. And being confident, you can grow closer to Him. And in growing closer to Him, you have fellowship with Him. And when you have fellowship with Him, you have joy complete in this life. It doesn't mean that all of the bad things are taken away. 
doesn't mean that you'll never cry. It doesn't mean that your, your tear ducts are going to be extracted from your face. But what it means is that the voice is put to rest that condemns you on a daily basis, that says you don't measure up, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not rich enough, you're not whatever, enough. Enough with the voice. You don't sweat, you're sleeping at night, you have confidence, you're freedom from guilt. You have a power to live, you have a certain confidence in every adverse situation, every good situation. You have Christ, the serious Christ, as your model, to walk as He did in this life. But He says you have to believe the message that comes from God, that is declared by John and by the other apostles and by every gospel preacher from there till now. Do you believe this? Are you ready to confess the great confession of your sin and repent and confess that Jesus is Lord? Your sins to be washed away by participating in His death, burial, and resurrection. And then to live that life in fullness of fellowship with God until you see Him face to face. If that describes you tonight, as Jeff leads us in the song and we're standing while we sing it, please come down to the front and talk to our shepherds.